Welcome to another episode of Value Investors Edge Live. This morning, we're hosting the CFO of Costa Marie, Greg Zikos, who will talk to us about the current container ship markets, as well as Costa Marie's plan to balance their growth and expansion plans into this market, as well as their insights on the current strengths and challenges we're seeing today. Headlines are talking about US-China trade war, but we're also seeing some strength ahead of IMO 2020. With that, I'll turn it over to CFO Greg Zikos, as disclosure, I have no position in Costa Marie stock, and nothing here today constitutes any sort of forward guidance. Greg, welcome. Uh, hi, Jay. Good morning. I do want to congratulate you. I mean, it's been uh, I've been tracking this stock, uh, of course, throughout the year, and it was one of our top picks at Value Investors Edge for 2019. And I just looked at the charts as we're talking, and you are up 86 percent uh, year to date, including the dividends that you've paid out. So, a very, very strong year. And uh, hopefully as we uh, continue to uh, close out 2019 and, and pivot to 2020, we can continue to see uh, that sort of success. I wanted to you know, bring you on to talk a little bit about container ship markets. Uh, you had a good uh, solid Q3 result here a couple weeks ago. Uh, you know, the markets, a lot of times we're, we're hearing a lot of stuff about the U.S.-China trade war and, and concerns about how that will impact the markets. But, you know, when we look around at the actual rates uh, that you're reporting and, and some of your peers are reporting, uh, the rates are actually stronger uh, year to date. Um, what kind of stuff are you seeing in the markets today? What, what are some of the, uh, I guess, signs of optimism and, and what are some of the big challenges? Yeah, first of all, uh, thank you very much uh, for having us uh, here today and uh, we do appreciate uh, this opportunity uh, to talk about the company and about the container ship market in general. Now, as you rightly pointed out, uh, charter rates and especially for the larger vessels uh, here today uh, have run up uh, quite uh, significantly. Uh, by saying larger vessels, I mean mainly ships above like uh, 5,500 EUs especially the sort of six and a half, eight and a half, and 11,000 TUs, they have performed uh, extremely well. Uh, smaller vessels like the uh, feeder ships up to the Panama size, um, they have not uh, followed up uh, this trend. Now, we have, been, uh, we have seen charter rates firming. For the larger vessels, there are a couple of factors. Uh, it's all about demand and supply, and there is demand for larger ships and the supply is rather limited. I would say that generally the market, there's very limited supply for the large vessels today. This has to do, first of all, uh, with uh, scrubber retrofits. Uh, this mainly applies to larger ships. And uh, initially people thought that uh, the whole process would be take some weeks. Apparently it take much longer. Uh, there is uh, a backlog. And uh, according to various uh, analysts, this may have taken uh, up to 2% uh, of of uh, shipping capacity, which is uh, a big number, especially for the ships of 8,000 TUs uh, and above. Uh, the second thing is that uh, we have also witnessed over the last years uh, a trend of uh, slow steaming, especially again for the larger vessels, uh, which again helps the supply and demand uh, dynamics. Uh, now, uh, regarding uh, generally the demand, uh, we have the Trans-Pacific trade war, as you rightly pointed out, although there seems to be a phase one agreement which may be coming over the next weeks. Uh, but we have uh, generally uh, the Brexit, uh, uh, we have uh, the European GDP uh, not being great. However, demand has been relatively resilient, I would say. Trans-Pacific here today, it's uh, you know, pretty flat. And I have to state that this comes from a very high base of uh, 2018, where 
where the last quarter we had uh, a lot of uh, uh, front loading. Uh, demand on the Asia-Europe trade uh, year to date, uh, to date is close to 5% higher compared to last year. Uh, so, uh, and overall demand seems to be quite resilient, bearing in mind all the negative uh, uh, events and the perception uh, uh, in the public. Uh, so, uh, going forward, we don't work at the market uh, uh, as an owner. Uh, we tend to be pretty much ready uh, also for a downside scenario. However, uh, bearing in mind the scrub retrofitting, which takes much longer, and the backlog and the ships that uh, are to be phased out for retrofit, it seems that uh, this uh, supply taken off market uh, may well continue within 2020. Uh, slow steaming seems. Uh, to be there, and we see no reason why it would go away. Also, increased fuel expenses means that normally a liner company might prefer to use a larger vessel compared to a smaller one because the cost per slot goes down. So, analyst consensus is that generally the supply and demand dynamics, especially for the larger vessels, uh, seem to be quite attractive today. Yeah, thanks, Greg. It seems like, uh, you know, we came into this market last year a little bit nervous, uh, you know, with the trade war uh, circumstance and we had a little bit of supply growth. But, you know, it looks like the reality of it is is kind of the Pacific trade was flat, um, but it was flat from basically record highs. Right. And then you mentioned the Europe trade was was up about five percent year over year and hitting all all new highs on that side of the business. And then the supply uh, looks like it's it's pretty flat. Right. Because there's a little bit of uh, new vessels hitting the fleet. But we also have the scrubber off hire. I think you I heard you mention that uh, some of that off hire was going to stretch uh, now into uh, 2020. Um, just just remind us uh, for Costa Marie and specifically, how does your uh, your scrubber plan factor into that? I know you're doing a few scrubbers in conjunction with your long term charters. Yes, uh, in total, uh, we have agreed to install scrubbers in 15 of our vessels. These are five new buildings which are now uh, in the building phase and they're going to be delivered uh, 2020 and 2021. Uh, we have also agreed to install scrubbers on the five 14,000 TU ships we have, which have a long-term charter to everything up until 2026. And we have also agreed to install scrubbers on five ships charter to MSC, these are close to 10,000 TUs uh, with, uh, a, with uh, a charter duration up until 2026 and 2027. Now, uh, in all those uh, instances, uh, it is uh, the charterer uh, who is paying for the scrubber cost, which means buying the equipment and also the scrubber retrofit. Uh, as a company, uh, I mean, in container shipping, uh, the fuel expense is a pass-through cost uh, to the charterer. So whatever benefits are being derived from the scrubbers, I think uh, uh, it's fair, uh, you know, that uh, the cost, uh, it's got to be with the charterer. Uh, we don't take uh, any residual value risk and we are not uh, investing uh, in equipment. As a pure uh, containership owner, we only take a residual value risk uh, on the asset, on the vessel, and uh, we only invest in the ships. Yeah, thanks, Greg. It, it sounds like you're 
simply taking the position that, look, uh, if our customers want to install the scrubbers and pay for the scrubbers and take that risk up front, they can do that and, and you'll work with them. But it doesn't sound like you are personally or with the company speculating on the fuel spreads or anything like that. Is, is that correct? Uh, that's absolutely correct. Uh, because, uh, first of all, we don't know uh, what the spread is going to be in two or three years' time. We don't know what the payback period uh, is going to be. Uh, for container shipping, which, you know, is not the same sector like a tribal uh, shipping, for instance, uh, the charter is paying for the fuel expense. Uh, and also, we don't know whether in a bad market in the future, in three, four years' time, whenever, I'm not saying that, you know, we're going to have a bad market, but generally, in a bad market, you are not sure whether the charterer is going to be willing uh, to pay in full the benefit to be derived by the scrubbers or not. Uh, so, I mean, you're right, we don't take uh, any risk uh, on scrub equipment. If the charterer, and these are our clients, and we need to cater to the needs of our client, wants to have uh, scrubbers uh, fitted on the vessels, uh, we're going to have uh, an agreement regarding the associated cost, and it's something to be borne by the charterer. Now, the charterer, they may pay through uh, sort of additional charter hire, uh, through a charter extension or also pay upfront. We have used all three options uh, in our dealings for the 15 vessels where scrubbers are going to be fitted. But uh, the bottom line is that we don't take uh, any residual value risk or uh, we don't uh, have any sort of capex commitments uh, for scrubbers. Yeah, thanks, Greg. I appreciate you clearing that up. It, it is kind of a different approach, I, I think, than some of the other companies we, we, we've talked to are doing. I think some of the other companies are uh, being a little bit more uh, speculative on there, and, you know, hopefully it turns out well for them. But but I do understand your approach. You know, the markets are, are pretty good right now, which we mentioned kind of in the intro, I think, you know, would have been surprising to a lot of people. Right, six months ago, a year ago, it would have been surprising to see the rates we're seeing now. Um, you kind of already talked about why that's happening, um, but what are some of the biggest risks that you see? What, what, when you're looking at the news or you're looking at the market fundamentals, uh, what concerns you the most? Look, I think uh, a lot of risks uh, are already factored in. I mean, there is a lot of uncertainty about the uh, you know trans-Pacific trade generally, and you know the trade war uh, between U.S. and China. Uh, the risk is that, that this is something that, you know, will not be resolved, although the consensus is that at some point uh, this will be resolved. Uh, we talk about Brexit, there's a lot uh, of uncertainty in there, but uh, still there's a lot of chances that, uh, uh, you know, we're going to have uh, a smooth Brexit agreement. Uh, we talk about the contraction of the economy uh, in Europe, however, this to some extent could be a side effect of uh, the trade war. Uh, so, uh, I mean, uh, we had some, uh, uh, we had a lower demand uh, in the Middle East, especially because uh, of Iran, which is already factored into, uh, into the demand numbers we are seeing today, and the same applies for the whole Middle East uh, uh, region. Uh, also, the same applies for South America, where, like, uh, we have a recession uh, in Argentina. So, all those uh, risks, we know... Uh, we know them today, and these are factored in the demand figures. Uh, I cannot think of sort of anything over and above that, and the risk is that uh, none of those issues will ever be resolved. Now, I have to stress, and sorry for repeating myself, that we don't forecast the market. We have no clue how all those things are going to uh, turn out. However, as a company, we make sure that even in a downside case scenario, uh, we can service our debt, pay for our expenses, 
and always have some cash on the side and access to debt uh, in order to opportunistically enter into new transactions. All the rest, should some or sort of all of those issues are properly resolved, and the sooner the better, is going to be an upside. And, and an upside is a good problem to have. It sounds like you you know you covered most of the demand side of things, right? It sounds like when you're talking about the market, you're looking at the economic health, right, of South America, of Europe, of of the U.S. China trades, and we're really kind of focused on on both the consumers there and then overall GDP. Uh, what about on the supply side? Do you see any sort of risks of a return to new builds, or how do you see that? On the supply side, uh, first of all, today we have an order book in the region of 10 percent which, if you take a historical view, I think it's, uh, it's pretty low. Uh, there are arguments that we have a lower order book uh, because uh, line companies and ship owners are waiting to see how the Trans-Pacific issue will be resolved. Uh, and so, and also orders here to date in 2019 are pretty low. So from the supply point of view, uh, we have an order book which is a very low figure. Uh, I have to remind you so that, I mean, you have a point of reference. At the peak of the market, prior to Lehman, we had an order book in, in container shipping of close to 60%. And today we talk about something uh, slightly below 10% probably. So I think the supply side uh, looks, uh, looks, uh, looks uh, quite promising today. Uh, and uh, the fact that we have not seen massive uh, new building ordering recently, there have been some orders for uh, 23,000 EU ships. From uh, mainly from line companies, but year to date we have not seen massive orders. Uh, there's not a huge pipeline, especially from 2022. The order book is very thin, uh, which generally I would consider this to be uh, good news and you know definitely positive in the supply demand uh, dynamic. Yeah, thanks. It sounds like uh, if I can kind of sum that up quickly, it, it sounds like you're saying supply looks really good. It's it's one of the best supply pictures we've seen uh, in, in many years, in, in several decades perhaps. Uh, but demand, of course, is uncertain. And so if we're looking towards the health of the container ship markets, we really need to watch uh, kind of the, the way demand uh, comes out. And, you know, thankfully, supply is it looks to be stable. Um, looking a little bit to that order book, we've seen some of these larger ships and some speculative uh, orders using LNG fueling. Have you uh, have you received any interest in doing some sort of leasing transactions with LNG or is that still a few years out for you guys? No, uh, up to now, as a company, we have not received uh, any sort of offers uh, for you know, LNG. And okay, there have been some LNG orders, uh, but compared to the rest of the order book, these are a part of it. This is a fraction of it. Uh, it's not the whole order book, uh, quite the opposite. Now, uh, it remains to be seen whether line companies and to what extent they're going to be adopting LNG uh, fuel uh, going forward. Uh, as a company, we cater to the needs of our clients, uh, of the charterers. So, uh, if this is the case uh, in the future, and of course, if as far as Costamara is concerned, uh, the numbers work, uh, we have always been extremely flexible as far as it is container shipping. We have a very diverse fleet, from smaller ships, uh, 1,000 TUs up to 14,000 TUs. So, it's part of our mandate uh, to cater to the needs of our clients and. Uh, and you know, be quite flexible. But up to now, we have not received any specific requests for like LNG fueled new buildings. 
All right, thanks, Greg. Yeah, we, we see a lot of headlines about you know LNG bunker fuel and LNG fueled containers and, and that sort of thing. I was just curious if you're you're starting to see that trickle out or not. Um, you, you know, you mentioned kind of that mandate, right, to your shareholders to to generate returns, but also uh, to work with your clients, right, and find out what makes sense for them. Um, in that kind of vein, right, balancing the you know responsibility to grow. Uh, for your shareholders, but also to meet the needs of the industry. Uh, what do you see as the most promising areas of growth? Is it is it some of these large vessels? Are there some mid-sized second-hand transactions? Are there maybe some new builds uh, around the corner? Um, what do you see as the most attractive area uh, to put capital to work in? Uh, we're looking at pretty much everything. So uh, in the past, and let me give you some, spe some specific examples so that you get a better view. Uh, last year, we did uh, new buildings. We did five uh, 13,000 EU ships. Uh, with uh, a 10-year charter on a back-to-back -back basis to Yangming. Also, uh, we bought like the, the share of York in the five 14,000 EU ships who have a charter up until 2026. Uh, opportunistically, we have also bought uh, older ships and smaller vessels like uh, 12, 15, 17 years old uh, without charter and we have bought them with equity. So we are, we are pretty much flexible uh, and open-minded. Sometimes the best returns can come from uh, all the tonnage, which you may buy at close to scrap values. And those ships, uh, those assets have a useful life of 25 to 30 years. So uh, as long as first we manage our downside risk, meaning our residual value risk at the expiry of the asset uh, charter cover or the residual value of the vessel at the expiry of its uh, asset life, as long as we cover our downside. Uh, and of course, we feel that after that, there is some upside for our shareholders. We are pretty much into everything that's got to do with container shipping, uh, irrespective of whether it is smaller or bigger vessel with or without charter. Now, there are some sort of restrictions that we need to renew the fleet. And uh, we need to have some new buildings with contracted cash flows uh, who are the backbone for our company. And today we have contracted cash flows of 2.3 billion. However, leaving that restriction aside, uh, we're pretty much open-minded regarding the type of assets we're looking at. Yeah, thanks, Greg. It sounds like you you pretty much just look for the best uh, overall return or at least projected return and then kind of allocate accordingly. And I understand you, you mentioned kind of the leasing backbone of, of those long-term new builds that have maybe a 10-year charter or something. And you know, that cash flow gives you a little bit more flexibility to maybe do some of those uh, pure equity purchases in the secondhand market. Um, you know, shifting a little bit there, we talked a little bit about your availability to grow. Um, and that depends, of course, on how much leverage you, you want to accept on your balance sheet. Uh, what is your, your target leverage for that? And then how do you look at your leverage? Is it like a debt to EBITDA kind of metric or do you just focus on the debt to assets directly? I imagine you have discussions with the banks on, on the best metrics to use. Yeah, uh, it's a couple of things. Uh, first of all, uh, regarding our commercial uh, bank facilities, uh, the commercial bank debt, uh, we have a covenant which is uh, the leverage, which is the percentage of uh, debt to the value of the assets, and then for the assets we take the market value of, of you know those assets, the ships, and we are providing our uh, our bankers with a compliance certificate. In the latest compliance certificate, uh, using uh, that matrix, uh, we had a leverage which was slightly above 40 percent. It was close to 42 percent. Uh, now, on a debt to EBITDA basis, which is uh, a common type of uh, ratio uh, used generally in shipping, uh, 
uh, we have a debt over EBITDA uh, close to four times, and we have a specific slide in our Q3 results press release where we go through the numbers and how we come up with uh, a debt over EBITDA uh, of uh, four times. This is by annualizing for 2019 the first uh, three quarters uh, of this year. Uh, another sort of matrix we have it is the uh, EBITDA over net interest expense, which is again one of our financial covenants, where we need to have a cover of at least 2.5 times and we are close to four times or above that. But apart from the leverage, which is a number, 42% of the total EBITDA four times, where we pay a lot of attention, uh, it is the cash flow and the debt maturing every year and our debt repayment profile. Because if you have a low leverage, let's say 40 or 50%, however, all your debt is maturing within the next year, this is not going to help you much because at some point next year you will have to sort of refinance the whole of your debt. So proactively, we are refinancing uh, balloons coming over. We have no balloons over the next 12 months. Some we had for 2020, we sort of refinance them a year ahead. Uh, and we look at our cash flows, uh, assuming a down case scenario, a downside scenario, uh, whether those cash flows can amortize our debt, uh, pay for our expenses, pay the dividends, pay the, uh, pay the dividend uh, on the preferred stock, uh, and also leave some cash on the side for new deals. So it's mainly we look at the cash flows and at the debt maturities uh, and whether those debt maturities are streamlined or not. And uh, the final consideration is that we make sure that we amortize our debt prudently without having a big balloons due and with a, with a debt repayment every year which is close to two times our depreciation expense. This is the main reason that uh, since going public uh, in 2010, but also earlier than that, we never breached a single financial covenant and we never had to restructure our debt. We didn't even breach covenant post Lehman, uh, where sort of asset values dropped significantly. This is simply because we are repaying our debt prudently. Thanks for the color on that, Greg. I think it's good to kind of see the metrics and there's, you know, there's several different ways of looking at it. You mentioned uh, 42% was kind of the bank's calculated uh, debt to assets. Uh, do you have a, a target for that that you look at? It, it's something that considers, uh, you know, makes you comfortable. Is it maybe like 40% to 50% or uh, is there any sort of target you could guide us on? No, we don't have a specific target. I think that generally the 40 or, or even 50% can, you know, is considered to be on the low side. So you can argue that even with a 50, 55 or even 60%, uh, you know, it's still not very high. Uh, but we don't have a target. We are focused, 100% focused on the cash flows. And the cash flows sort of amortize our debt uh, prudently without having any excessive refinancing risk at any point in time. So we mainly care about the cash flows and the balloon payments and whether the value of those assets at the expiry of the loans can have those loans refinanced or not. Yeah, that makes sense, Greg. I guess what I was just trying to get at is, is kind of what is your capacity for growth without using equity? And it, it sounds like there is some some internal capacity to generate, uh, whether it was some secondhand transactions or, or a few more new builds or whatever it might be. It, it does sound like there's a little bit of, of internal uh, flexibility there due to your strong balance sheet. Pivoting a little bit on that, I want to talk about capital allocation. It's something a lot of investors uh, want to understand in terms of, you know, what are your priorities? I, I know we talked about all the different types of growth that we 
could accomplish. Um, but is that your priority right now to grow or is there more of a pivot to shareholder returns? And if there were going to be shareholder returns, uh, do you think that would be more so in, in, in the way of dividends uh, like we've seen historically? Uh, is there any sort of uh, price range at which repurchases make sense? Uh, and how do you think about prioritizing those? Yeah, well, the priority is uh, it's not to grow and uh, it's never been the priority to grow. Uh, we we will grow, and in the past we have been growing when we think that we have generally a low asset value environment. So because it's a highly cyclical sector and industry, you cannot have a you know predetermined growth rate no matter what, because if you grow at the wrong part of the cycle, at some point the cycle is going to catch up with you again at the wrong time. So now we have a generally, I would say, uh, uh, we are looking for opportunities uh, that makes sense, but we have 75 vessels today. We have, uh, and, and, you know, we have a large fleet also uh, in terms of the size of those vessels. So, I mean, we don't have to grow. Uh, opportunistically, we will be doing transactions, but only if those transactions make sense for our shareholders and, you know, if they're really accretive. Otherwise, we don't have the need to grow. Uh, now, regarding capital allocation and like what we think about the dividends or share purchases, etc., we like dividends. Uh, and you know, I have to stress that the founders, uh, the founding family ownership today, is slightly below 60%. And you know, our interests are fully aligned with those of the pre-float uh, shareholders. Since June 2016, uh, the founding family has reinvested cash dividends of 77 million in new shares through a dividend reinvestment plan. So, I mean, uh, we believe big time in the company. We have reinvested north of 75 million over the last three years. Now, we get questions about potential dividend growth. I think uh, we did have like, a lot of good results over the last year. Uh, I think that for us, it wouldn't be a problem to raise the dividend. However, uh, any dividend increases should normally come together with increased contracted cash flows coming from new business with credit-worthy charters. Uh, I think this would be the right thing to do. And we're looking uh, a lot uh, into those type of transactions, which uh, eventually might also lead to a, dividend, uh, to a dividend increase. Now, I have to stress here that this is a board decision, and this is not my personal decision. But generally, the way we look at dividend increases, those should be coming together with increased cash flows, uh, which are going to be stretching over a, a, a substantial period of time. Thanks for that, Greg. Yeah, you mentioned dividend increases, so my, my ears perked up, and I'm sure uh, many of our listeners will also uh, <laughs> started paying a little bit more attention when we heard those words. Um, you, you mentioned having more contracted cash flows. Is that uh, some of the new builds that you already have on the uh, on the plans? Does that kind of qualify as that, or do you think you need to transact for, for further growth before considering a dividend increase? No, uh, we don't have any sort of, uh, no, no, I was not I was not referring to any specific transactions uh, we have in our plate today. Uh, I'm saying that generally, uh, you know, increased dividends should come with increased contracted cash flows, and those cash flows uh, should have uh, a substantial tenor, right? Uh, I think uh, uh, because we don't like raising the dividend and then having to adjust it again. Uh, that's all I said. We don't have something specific which and so and the dog make any hint. So don't get me wrong, I have to be crystal clear. Uh, I just said that in theory, 
increased dividends will come together with increased cash flows. The new buildings we have today is something we know and that these are already factored in, I think, uh, in today's dividend. Today we pay 10 cents uh, per share per quarter, which is uh, a dividend yield uh, slightly above 5%, which I consider this to be a very healthy dividend yield, bearing in mind our track record uh, over the last years and especially our, you know, our profitability. But this is a board decision, so I'm afraid that I cannot comment uh, more than that. I have to say, however, and you know, I'm going to close the subject, is that we have been paying a dividend since going public. In 2016, we had to adjust it, and at some point, the dividend uh, yield was uh, prior to that was extremely high, so there was absolutely no reason to continue paying that dividend. A 5% dividend yield today, I think, to be quite attractive considering uh, the company's uh, circumstances and fundamentals. Yeah, thanks, Greg. You, I almost got you in trouble there. I appreciate you, uh, you mentioning it's a board decision and, and not, of course, uh, committing to um, any sort of future actions without seeing those transactions. But, you know, the dividend is something that, that brings a lot of investors to the stock, but I, I think you did kind of underscore it that, look, it's the stability of the business. It's the stability of that dividend. Uh, that's more important than, uh, you know, maybe maybe raising it uh, prematurely. Um, I did want to focus just a little bit before we close this out on, on looking for the direction of the market. I know you said you look uh, at the demand side uh, to be, you know, be, be careful there with, with a lot of disruptions we're seeing. Um, but also, as we look at the charter markets, uh, we're seeing very good rates on the one-year charters. Uh, both for mid-sized and larger vessels, um, but are we seeing any sort of uh, those similar rates for the two-year, three-year, four-year, five-year kind of longer tenors, or is it mostly just the uh, shorter-term charters that have been moving around? Look, uh, here today, uh, we have uh, seen, uh, first of all, for the larger vessels, we have seen uh, some commitments for two to three years, uh, and those commitments, uh, they were not there some years ago. Uh, which is a positive sign. Now, today, if you go for a two or three year period, inevitably the charter rate will be below the one year charter rate. But I mean, there is willingness to commit from the charters, which generally is something positive. Uh, and the second point is that if you look at our fleet list, uh, we chartered uh, this year uh, the, on a forward basis uh, the five uh, V type vessels uh, close to 9,000 EUs. Which uh, we charter them uh, to cap at load for period at uh, 34,500, uh, which is uh, definitely uh, a very good rate uh, for a period uh, with a top charter. So, uh, the bottom line today, the rates for two, three, five, or whatever years uh, for the larger vessels would be. Uh, would be below those uh, for a, like a, a one year time charter rate. However, the fact that uh, some learners are willing to commit now for the larger ships for a longer period, I think this is definitely a, a positive sign. All right, excellent. Yeah, let's let's hope those uh, those charter rates keep moving up. I know uh, you know we have listeners on the call today, and also uh, listeners later who are both involved in Costa Marine, but also involved in in the overall container ship sector. And we're hoping to see that demand stay steady. And of course, the supply side uh, to stay restrained, as you mentioned. So uh, thanks again for joining us today, Greg. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much, uh, Jay. Uh, I appreciate uh, your invitation. And it, it was great uh, talking to you today. And uh, looking forward to also having some future discussions on Costa Mar and the Equatorial Market. Thank you. 
As disclosure, I have no position in Costa Marie stock, and nothing you hear today constitutes any sort of forward guidance. Feel free to join our research platform and take place in future discussions. To read my research, please navigate to SeekingAlpha.com and search for Jay Mintzmeyer. To access our premium content, you can navigate direct to Mintzmeyer.com. That's M-I-N-T-Z-M-Y-E-R.com to sign up for a free trial.